Welcome to Breaking Free Authentically, the podcast where we explore what redefining relationships looks like through a sex-positive lens. Let's kick shame and guilt to the curb and really start living a sexy, authentic life. I'm passionate about normalizing out-of-the-box ways of designing relationships. There's nothing quite like finding your tribe and experiencing the freedom of being completely yourself without judgment. I'm your host, Kareen Bedard, your sex-positive relationship designer, and I'm here to guide you in creating the relationship you desire, whether that is a more open one or simply a more empowered one. Join me every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to enjoy the newest episode. Well, welcome back to Breaking Free Authentically. And today I'm so excited to have my special guest, Rainier Wild. He is an experienced teacher, writer, and speaker. He's embraced life for all that it is, and he has celebrated its highs and learned from its lows. He's managed a Fortune 500 company and built businesses. He has also elegantly blown them up, burned them down, and started over from scratch. He holds a master's degree in psychology and has spent countless hours working with men and women in navigating the human soul. Through the various positions that he's held, he's discovered that life must be claimed to hold any worth. His work is to inspire others to live fully and deeply in the here and now. So I have called this episode Living Wild and Free, because in essence, that's what we talk about today. We (laughs) go on such a journey. I first heard Rainier Wild on the Blue Hotel podcast, and I was fascinated by his life and his journey and how much he values authenticity and living authentically. His background is very similar to mine, as you'll hear in the beginning. Uh, We both went to Bible school, not just Bible school, Bible college. Um, We grew up very fundamentalist Christian, evangelical Christian. And so our programming from very early on was very similar in a lot of ways. And We've both managed to break free from that programming, and and it's been such a journey. And I challenge each and every one of you to really take a look at the programming that you have. That's all. Just take a look at it and evaluate and see if it's congruent with the way that you want to live. See if it adds up. See if it makes sense. And make decisions for your life that are based on the truth that you want to live and what is aligned for you. I can't ask for anything else. I am here to help you all break free authentically. And that means not being a shithead to other people. It means not being a shithead to yourself, being loving and kind to yourself, honoring who you are, honoring others that have a vested interest in you and being kind first and foremost. So I am so excited about this conversation. It went in a lot of directions and we do talk about the shift from being religious to non-monogamy and that mindset and how that looked very different for each of us and kind of where we're at today on that. And it's just a fascinating conversation. I pressed record right away. 
as soon as we started talking because I didn't want to miss anything. So we just get right into starting to talk about his education and um, his experience going to school in Canada, actually the same school my sister went to for for a year. Um, so that's kind of cool that they have a bit of a connection with that same school that I thought that was interesting. So we talked about that a little bit and then I introduced him and then we got into the podcast. So um, I'll just let it go and you just go right in and don't miss anything. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but every word is just potent and I really enjoyed the whole thing. So it's all going to be there. So enjoy and we'll see you in just a little bit. Please visit our website at www.breakingfreeauthentically.com and subscribe to our mailing list so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave a review on Podchaser by clicking the link at the top of the page. That would mean the world to me. Finally, I'd love for you to join Breaking Free Authentically, our private sex-positive relationship community on Facebook. All the links will be posted in the show notes. Enjoy the show. So, yeah, so you were, you went to school in... I went to school, uh, well, I went to several schools. The yeah. first the first year out of high school, I went to a Bible college and seminary, and it, it provoked a real crisis of faith, actually. Mm-hmm. I... I guess there's a bit of a backstory here. I don't normally share this. It's so interesting, but might as well go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, my father was a, a an evangelical minister and a televangelist. I grew up uh, seeing the lower 48 United States from the backseat of a station wagon, traveling from church to church, from camp meeting to camp meeting. I had a fairly unique childhood. I like to think I grew up in the belly of the beast and saw it for what it was. And around the age of 14, I was pretty convinced um, that that it was all hogwash. Mm-hmm. And I was really done with it. Um, I had had a series of interests or curiosities in other faiths. Um, had studied, you know, as one does at 14, had <laughs> studied Islam and I, I had a friend give me the Book of Mormon and and then I had, you know, picked up some Zen Buddhist texts, which would later become so, uh, so important to me. But at that point in time, it all kind of just sounded a bit science fiction-like. And so I kind of was just done with the whole religion thing having had to memorize vast swaths of the Judeo-Christian texts, I was I was just done. It didn't make much sense to me. So at 14, I announced there is no God and kind of bite my thumb at, at my parents and a lot of, a lot of uh, that world. But around 17 years old, my, my family moved um, across the continent and I found myself surrounded by genuinely wonderful people who were a, a part of a Christian church and and they were they were really really wonderful to me and I found deep deep friendships there and and the Christianity that they talked about began to make sense to me and one of the things that I heard them say was something like this that Christianity hadn't really been tried and found wanting it just hadn't been tried and what would it look like if 
people took Jesus seriously at his word and treated him more like a guru and a master rather than uh, just a guy who had some fun suggestions that nobody followed. Mm-hmm. And so this became very interesting to me. And, uh, and so I began to try to imagine Jesus as more of an Eastern style guru than anything and really paid attention to what he said in the New Testament. Well, at that point in time, I had some good friends who decided they would go north to Canada to Bible college. And this suited me just fine because I had slept in on the day that um, our standardized testing SATs had been taken. I didn't have those under my belt. I honestly had no clue what I was going to do with my life. I didn't want to stay at home in my own misery and shame. So I decided to go to the great Northern Canada where they didn't require standardized testing. They just accepted my American dollar. And, uh, and so I followed my friends up to Bible college, but I was genuinely hopeful that, that I would find something that would substantiate this deep hunger I had. And so I get to this this northern seminary, this Bible college. And the first thing they do when you get there is they have you take a a Bible content exam. And this Bible content exam had a number of questions on it. Well, I score 99 out of 100 on it. And what that means is that I test out of all of my theology and Bible content classes for three years. And it was like this crushing death blow to me. Cool, because that's what, what I you wanted to do because that's what I wanted and I was so hungry and so what I felt like they were saying was well you have what we have to give you and it still is empty mm. and so I, I literally called my father on the first week and I said hey I'm, I'm coming home after this this year and uh, and so I did I, I stuck out the year and I made some incredible friends I, I met um, the, the woman who would become my first wife. Um, and, uh, ultimately it was a very life changing time. What it wasn't was, uh, spiritual. It wasn't that really at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Moody Bible Institute was definitely a different experience than, than that, but because I found that it challenged me in so many ways. Cause I was, I grew up, um, in the brethren assembly in Canada. And then whenever we lived in the States, um, so I lived in Tacoma, Washington, and I lived in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, my dad was Air Force, so we moved around. He was in the, he was an exchange officer in the States a lot of times. So whenever we lived in the States, we always went to Baptist churches. So that just, coming from the Brethren Assembly, like we had head coverings and the women didn't speak in church and we had... we had elders rather than a pastor. I was the church pianist since I was 13. And so going to Moody challenged all my very, very fundamentalist ideas about head coverings and all that. Like those passages were challenged. And I was like, what? And I'm, I'm one that I grew up and I probably saw this as an example in my home very much so, but when someone didn't agree with me, I would just shut it down. I would shut down and I would, I would basically say, you have nothing to offer me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and I always had this sort of superiority, not complex, but like I was trained to think that I knew stuff that everybody didn't. Mm -hmm. And I find that that made me so prideful. And I don't like who I was then, even though, 
I was trying to be so humble and spiritual and, and everything. It's just like, it's such a fraud sometimes. And I felt like I was being authentic. And so that is something I want to talk about today is I know that you're big on authenticity. And that's one of the things listening to your podcast interview um, on Blue Hotel, I was like, I just the clip, I was like, oh, he's all about authenticity and and um, from what I could tell, ethical non-monogamy and all of these things. And I was like, oh, I've got to talk to this guy. No, first I'm going to listen to this podcast. And then I listened to the podcast and I was like, oh, we have to have a chat. We have to meet. We have to talk because our backgrounds, I think, just really intersect. And I, on this podcast, I really try to, it's called Breaking Free Authentically. So I'm really trying to bring people to the understanding that what we've been taught, our programming isn't always what we think it is. And, and so we get to reevaluate, we get to take a look at it because if it wasn't for someone who's very, very important to me in my life, deconverting and going through that process, I would have never questioned anything because I was blissfully unaware Mm. And I didn't have doubts, right? Like some people, like you had the doubts, you had the questions. I didn't even have that. I just believed it all. It was a hundred percent true to me, every single word. Mm. So, oh, what an unraveling that was. Oh and it was, I think it's probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through because mm -hmm. it's like my whole existence had to be dismantled and put back together. And so I had to rebuild my worldview from the ground up. And now I'm so thankful for that. You know, I'm so thankful that I've I've been able to reason myself out of that and then reason myself back into creating a worldview that that fits who I am. Mm -hmm. And there's been shifts over the past 10 years of who I am and what that looks like. And and now I get to live out my most most authentic self. Um, I'm no longer married to my ex who I met in Bible school as well. We just don't have the same, you know, the same goals in life. And he, he has his own life and his own kinds of things. And I wanted to be authentic with my life. And so it was just best for us to go separate ways. We're not enemies, but um, I'm very passionate about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm still being with him. And that's not the only reason. I mean, there was a lot of other things too, but, um, at the end of the day, like I get to, I get to do this. I get to educate people. I get to help people create empowered, open relationships and really connect with who they are and get rid of shame and guilt, you know, mm. at the end of the day. And, and you talked a lot about shame too. So before we go on, let me let me say welcome back everyone. <laughs> we are um on episode 24 of the Breaking Free Authentically podcast and I can't believe already it's been 24 episodes. Um but it's very exciting and I actually am just loving it so much. I get to meet cool people like you. Um and you you are Rainier Wild and 
we've heard a little bit about sort of your your religious background and things like that. We started like that, and I, I think that's kind of fun. I wanted you guys to get in on that because uh, sometimes just getting into a conversation is awesome. I love the free flow of that. So we didn't want to miss anything juicy and have to start over. <laughs> so um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Because I don't know that a whole lot of people have heard who you are, mm. not around here anyways, not my people. So yeah. I would like them to know who you are because you're amazing. <laughs> so, well, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm a writer and a teacher um, and an author. And what I find myself talking about um, so often is living life in the here and now with all of the perils, pitfalls, triumphs, and tragedies that accompany um, life in reality. When we're living without excuses or escapes, when we're living up to the minute, up to the event horizon of the present. So I talk a lot about that in my daily writings on Instagram uh, or on my blog or in the books that I'm writing. I focus a lot on intimacy as well as examining our own shadows. I host a podcast called Love Like Hell with my partner, Christy, and uh and otherwise, uh, myself try to live a life that's full. You know, it's so funny. I, I often get asked, um, you know, what do you do? What's your elevator pitch? One time I was on a podcast and <laughs> someone said, like, what's your elevator pitch? And I said, God, I, I just take the stairs. I, I never take the elevator. So I don't know. <laughs> I it's love like it. an existential. Time. <laughs> right. Like it's such an existential crisis when someone asks, who are you and what do you do? But I think at, at the core of it, I'm someone who wants to step into life fully on its own terms. And what I find that that today passes for life is often people practicing life, people imagining that, well, this life that I'm living isn't really the life that I want to live. And I, and that's like, you know, playing in the minors and hoping that one day you get called up to the majors. Mm -hmm. The reality is that we are in fact living the one wild and precious life that we have. And if you don't like your life, then change it. But mm -hmm. don't imagine that you're living practice. This is it. This is the good mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And if it's not the good stuff, make it so. And so that's really what I help people do. And that is a path of liberation and freedom um, that I had to walk through as well. Part of that is freeing yourself from the constraints of the culture that you were brought up in. Oftentimes I deal with people who were not brought up in religion, were not brought up in, in any kind of sect, but they were brought up in dominant culture, which itself is a cult that indoctrinates us, you know, from the moment we're born, reinforces us, punishes us to think a certain way. Um, and what I find is that a lot of the same things that led me to break free from things like, well, institutionalized religion or, mm -hmm. or you know, very narrow fundamentalist thinking are the same things that, that break pre people free from their own fundamentalist thinking. You know, so often people so leave true. one cult and find another cult, you know? Yeah. Um, and that is often unquestioned um, culture at large. And so what I want to help people do is to find their authentic voice, to mm -hmm. sing with their own song. And, uh, and so I get to do that day in and day out. Isn't it awesome? I, it's wonderful. Yeah. I just, I think it's such a blessing to have almost been forced to evaluate things and not just be like, oh, well, I don't, a lot, like most Christians, fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians have no framework for you leaving the faith unless 
you hate God Hmm. or unless you just want to be a rebel or you just don't want to follow the truth, you know, the truth. And that none of those things were true for me. And I think that it's important to, to say that because I didn't just leave because I didn't like what I was hearing. That's not why I left. And I didn't just switch to go to something else that pleased me more. What I realized, um, and a lot of people who have been listening to the podcast know that I started listening to Playboy radio all the time because they were the worst of the worst, right? Like those sex people. And so I was told, right? Like we were told people in the world don't have joy. They don't know how to love. You can't love without Christ. You can't have joy and peace. There's just nothing out there and everybody's miserable. That's mm. that's what I was told. And then I started listening to Playboy and I'm like, what in the world? Mm. These are my people. Like they're intelligent. They don't just talk about surface things. Like they actually get down to like some interesting, real, authentic, vulnerable intimate mm. subjects and they're not afraid of it they respect each other more than i'd ever seen people respect each other mm. you know this idea of consent being so like we didn't see that in yeah. in the church we just said we were just told don't do it till you get married which i followed i did not do it till i got married at 22 I'm so sorry i know <laughs> I, don't worry i'm making up for it <laughs> but uh I mean, I didn't know any better. So, I mean, maybe that, maybe that was good, right? Like in that sense. But I think, you know, this idea of not questioning what you believe and just going to something else, because I could have just gone to like another culture, another thing that just fit better. Um, but these people in Playboy had such a, a joy and a care and a love for each other and a respect and then I came across that show Swing with Michael and Holly, and I was like, what in the world is this? Mm. What? The, like, married people are having mm. sex with other married people? Like, how? That's not allowed. Like, how did <laughs> the cognitive dissonance was ringing loudly? And I was like, what is going on? Yet they were, it was like relationship goals because they were so can happy with each other and they were talking about they just had this intimacy and connection on the podcast that they had and and I thought what how can this bring them close like what is this it just it was such a mind fuck like complete mm. mind fuck so that was the that polar opposite that said okay this doesn't add up to what you've been told your whole life so what else might not be true and let's weigh this out. We got to we got to do some investigation here because I'm kind of an all or nothing type of person, right? So I believed every single word. Well, if not every single word is true, like how do I reconcile that? What do I do? Oh my gosh, what a twisted journey that was. Oh, oh the gosh. tears and everything, right? But once it started to make sense and come together, I just was like I found the freedom of stepping out of the box. <laughs> And looking in and going, oh, that is so weird. Like, that looks like any other cult. Oh, how can that be? No, 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 no. Jump back in the box and be like, okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then I'd step out again and just kind of reevaluate looking at it. I expect everybody else to evaluate their faith. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't yeah. I do it, right? 
And then, and so when I talk to people, I always say, you know, like I want to help people break free from the religious and societal programming that we have in our society about sexuality and relationships, relationship structures and and everything. And I want people to be able to make their own choices and realize there's no shame um, and break that cycle. And people are like, oh, but I'm not, I've never been religious. I was like, well, you don't understand how much of the societal programming is informed from religious, Mm -hmm. especially in the States. And I say that a lot, right? Like the U S is very culturally Christian. Most people have no clue what they actually believe. Right. They would not score 99 on the test. (laughs) So much of, especially, you know, it's interesting. We often think at least in the United States that the left is perhaps the home of liberal minded, perhaps even secular minded, um, individuals. I I find that to be such a interesting misnomer that progressive society is somehow or another not religious. I often find that the left is in some ways uh, as fundamentalist as the right, that fundamentalism has simply found a new form. Rigidity has simply found a new face. Listen, fundamentalism in any of its forms is an aberration. Um, When we cannot sit with uncertainty, when we cannot be with ambiguity, mm. when we cannot uh, embrace uh, the 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 blurring of lines that are mm. simply not clear in life, this is a form of fundamentalism. Our desperate need for certitude mm-hmm. is strangling our ability to live life on its own terms. Isn't it though? Yeah, that's that's powerful. Yeah, I I think that we forget that anything that we believe we have to be able to hold with an open hand Mm. and and i think that's one of the most freeing things is when you can recognize that you can change what you believe and that's okay Mm -hmm. and and you can be given more information and it can you can adapt as you go and i think for me one of the most freeing things since i've left christianity is is the fact that I don't know that I know that I know that I know, <laughs> right? Yeah. I can right. say I don't know anymore. Uh, and I couldn't say that before because that was like, I had to know because mm. I had the truth. And if I didn't know, then, but now I can go, I, I don't know. And I don't know if that's completely true. And I did not want to be, so I went to the opposite side. I went to atheism because I was mm. like, well, there's no reason to believe in a, in a God, like the, when there's a natural explanation for most of the things as, mm. as I unwound everything, you know, and I was like, okay, well this happens, but there's a perfectly good natural explanation for that. So I don't need to, I don't need God to, to explain that. And I don't need God to explain this. I don't, I'm not saying he doesn't exist. I just don't have any be- need to believe that he does exist. Just like the onus is on, you know, on you, if you believe in God to prove that there is a God, just like if you believe in Santa, the onus is on you to prove that there is a Santa because it's you know not really very believable. So that was helpful to kind of unpack a lot of things. Um, but then I got to the other side and I was like, well, I don't want to be a dogmatic atheist when I started to be challenged on that thinking. And that was mm. another my book. And to yeah. go, you know, and, and, and when you're in the coaching world, 
the entrepreneur world, there's a lot of spiritual people. There's a lot of, you know, I don't want to say mysticism, but like very creative, spiritual, deep, intellectual people. And those are my people. But then they started talking about, you know, the universe and this and manifestation. And and I mean, I just got thrown right into that world because so much of it was so interesting to me in terms of like the subconscious beliefs, Mm. right? Like, like your limiting beliefs are subconscious and they have been imprinted on you since childhood. And that's why you believe what you believe and we're meaning makers and all that sort of psychology stuff. Just, I loved it. I was like, (laughs) I've always loved psychology and marriage and relationships and, and everything. I've always done the research. That's what I did for fun in high school. Right. Like while other kids read novels, I read, you know, psychology books. But um, what I'm getting at is that if I wasn't able to kind of look at other new things, I didn't have a framework for, in, in atheism, I didn't have a framework for the universe or higher power or or angels or this or that. And I'm like, Okay, well, if I'm completely shutting that down because I have ruled out religion, now I might be missing something. And again, I don't have to be dogmatic about it. I can go, you know, I'll try it on for size and see. And I don't have to know that that's absolutely true. If if something feels good to me and it works for me and it doesn't harm other people, then then why can't I try that on for size, right? Right the the addiction to getting it right is mm. so central to i think contemporary culture mm. looking good getting it right hiding our mistakes making sure no one sees our flaws or our shortcomings and that's not an especially religious concept that's pretty endemic to human beings it certainly is writ large with our society today mm-hmm. so i think that you know when we when we get beyond that when we shed that addiction to having to get it right what we're left with is a series of arbitrary choices or even problems to solve you know one of my favorite um, sort of life maxims is um do what is necessary, do only what is necessary. And this is a, a stoic concept that, that really gets to the heart of do what works, do what's effective in life. Most of us would rather look good or appear justified than actually do what works. Mm-hmm. I was so reminded of this. I, I Part of my life story was I was a clinical psychotherapist and I specialized in self-harming and suicidal clients. Um, and I, I would work with individuals and I remember um, there were sometimes when individuals would learn profound skills, they would, they would be able to get through a crisis, but they wouldn't apply the skills in the moment that, that required of them because they didn't want to look foolish. Mm. I'll never forget one particular skill is called ice bath and you, you place something cold right under your eyelids, which kind of creates a bit of a shock in your nervous system. This has been popularized, you know, by Bim Hoff and various others who do ice bath or whatnot, but, but you can actually replicate the same thing by putting something very cold under your eyelids and kind of holding your breath for um, an intermittent amount of time. This creates a pause in your nervous system, helps you reboot. Mm -hmm. 
And this is something we would teach to various individuals that would help them get through a moment without making it worse. One particular individual certainly was able to do that skill wonderfully, but then they ended up um, having a, a crisis and ended up needing intervention. So I asked them, well, what broke down? And they said, well, I was in the grocery store when I had these urges. And I said, oh, okay, well, why couldn't you have used your skills? And they said, well, I don't know what skill I would have used. And I said, well, why not ice bath? And they said, well, how would I have done that? And I said, well, you could have gone to the frozen food section and grabbed some peas and put them under your eyelids. And, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, well, I would have looked stupid. See, she was more dedicated to looking good than to doing what works. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us in life, uh, we see life as a series of, of trying to maintain the mask of decency, maintain the mask of trying to appear like we have it together. When really, let's just do what works. Let's do what's effective. Let's make choices that help us solve problems, that that actually get into our desires, that allow us to, assuming they don't harm other people, uh, that allow us to pursue what we want, actually. Yeah. And then someone says, well, oh my God, you know, it's like, I uh, I I really want to to smoke pot. Okay, smoke pot. My God. Mm-hmm. And then someone else says, "Well, you know, uh, what I we we can you know smoke pot, but we can't have psilocybin mushrooms that are so expanding in your consciousness and that are allowing you to to actually take on reality in new and and dimensional ways." And it's like, who said? Mm-hmm. Well, a bunch of folks in their 70s who have passed some legislation um, said so. That's, mm-hmm. that's who said so. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Why in the world have we created a, a world in which uh, we are being told how to move our bodies, how to behave, how to be in this world, in which it not only does no harm to others, but actually creates a, an immense amount of good as the science is showing. Again, that's just to use one small oh. example. But Rainier, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> I mean, my God, you let someone do what they want. They might actually be happy. Right. Or right. or if you let people have sex outside of wedlock, then they're going to start having sex with animals. Like that was always one that I was like, <laughs> what? How are we? How are we getting to that? You know, <laughs> and like who makes all these rules in the first place? Right? Like, I mean, well, I mean, here, here, here's the interesting thing miserable people make rules for right? others because they and feel safer, I guess. It feels safer. They feel more in control. They feel more deliberate. Here's the thing why not actually live your life? Right. Rather than make rules for other people's lives. And how about this? How about we actually do what people who are happy tell us makes them happy rather than do what miserable people tell us will actually just get us through life? I mean, here's the thing. The people who are making the rules are miserable. I know because they came into my office and confessed how miserable they were. (laughs) And yet we will follow their prescriptions endlessly not because it will make us happy but because somehow or another it will make us justified or right mm-hmm. yeah we have to shed our dependency on rightness we have to begin to make our new evaluation our new distinction does it actually make me live a life that is full of joy and delightedness mm-hmm. does it increase my connection to others does it increase my ability to care for those who i'm in relationship to mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, let's talk about how making those choices can affect our our choices in our sexuality. And so I'm I'm curious a little bit how you came to the world of ethical non-monogamy from your background, if you're willing to share any of that. But I think that there's a lot of people listening to my podcast that are kind of in that transition place. And they're like, mm-hmm. I didn't work out the first time and I feel really stuck, you know, and, and I don't want to live like that again. Or, you know, and this time around, maybe there's something else and maybe these people are doing these things and is it really hurting? Is it really hurting people? And, and should there be shame around that? And and who made the rules anyways, you know, so that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I think that first of all, I, I actually just want to talk about going back to our earlier conversation about fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. One of the things I notice is that identity creates a sense of pseudo safety. And so that if I camp out and say, well, this is who I am, this is who I always am. And somehow or another, I feel safe. I get a little tribe around me of other people who make mm-hmm. the same kind of statement. And somehow I can move through life easier until, of course, the cracks start to form. And I realize that actually, well, it's not all of who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not only that, I'm not always that. So when we talk about ethical non-monogamy, for me, it's an interesting label. It's an interesting distinction. But I'm not terribly interested in it per se as a person. Labels don't really do much for me and distinctions don't do that much for me. What I am profoundly interested in is the breadth of human experience. So Mm -hmm. I'll tell you my human experience. My human experience was, you know, I'll I'll never forget my, my first girlfriend who I cared about in a, you know, I look back and I cared about to the extent that a 16 year old could care about someone. Um, but I cared about her a lot at the time. And then I also started to develop feelings for, for my best friend. I felt terribly conflicted about this. So I did what any 16 year old does. I cheated, mm-hmm. right? This began a series of relationships that would lead me through my, my late twenties when I would pretty much replicate that. Mm-hmm. I would always be sort of in relationship to to two individuals at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was rarely more than that. In fact, if I felt like I had two kind of secure connections, somehow or another, I myself felt secure. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dance card was full. I, I would stop looking. But if it was with one person, I would inevitably be looking for a second person to fill it. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't feel like there was anything good about this. I felt like a real shitty human being mm-hmm. and knew one thing, which was I'm just a very bad monogamist. <laughs> I had a friend who was who was polyamorous at the time, and I remember him saying, well, yeah, gosh, maybe you're poly. And, you know, whatever can be said about this, what I'm actually going to say is, I think you actually have to be good at monogamy to be good at polyamory. And by that, I mean, I think you have to be able to keep agreements that you make. And one thing I was awful at was keeping agreements. Mm -hmm. I didn't keep agreements with anybody and I didn't keep agreements with myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying I was just a polyamorous person waiting to happen. I think honestly, I was really not very good at creating safe structures for myself or other Mm -hmm. people. But, Can I interject there for just yeah. a second? Because sure. um, so I I like what you're saying there. And I think that at, at its core, what I say to people about 
polyamory and and ethical non-monogamy and, and i say ethical non-monogamy is like an umbrella and there's a spectrum under there right like you can be anywhere from you know monogamous swinger to poly you know and and it includes everything and and in between and my job is to help you figure out where you fall under that but the big thing with polyamory is that you naturally have a capacity to love more than one person right at the same time. So the agreements and all that and and learning to be good at relationships, that's a completely different skill. But if you are are trying to move into polyamory to justify your yeah. your cheating and you actually aren't capable of loving more than one person at a time, like you only have capacity for one, then that's the wrong move for you. Right. Um so I completely agree, but I also want people to understand that like one of those foundational things is like, can you, and do you desire to love more than one person? Because there's nothing wrong with that desire. Now, how you play that out is very important (laughs) because that's where it's ethical and not ethical. Right. So continue on. So the monogamous part. Well, no, I had that capacity and I knew I had that capacity yet, you know, Unfortunately, the way it got played out and the way that it was buried was so problematic Mm -hmm. that it was just creating massive amounts of suffering. At the end of my uh, first marriage, uh, which was largely due to my own infidelity, uh, I moved on very hopefully that my next relationship would somehow or another be full and vibrant and wonderful and, and everything that my last monogamous relationship wasn't that this mm-hmm. somehow or another would cure me would fix me and, uh, right. and and so you know i i moved into that relationship we didn't talk about sex at all even though i had two kids from a previous marriage even though she had a child from a previous relationship you would have thought that we were both the blessed virgins like we never <laughs> once talked about sex uh we certainly didn't talk about wants or dreams i remember my proposal amounted to what do you need to feel more married Right. And uh, and so it was like we we really were negotiating these spaces very, very poorly. Another thing about, you know, relationships and certainly ethical, ethically non-monogamous relationships is, gosh, communication is super important. Have all the conversations. We had none of them. And so it was just a matter of time before, you know, I once again was trying to to play this out and map this out. Well, it went it went really horribly. Mm-hmm. And I got to watch the skyscraper of my life get hit with a wrecking ball and 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 burned down in in amazing ways. Now she stayed, and the amazing thing about that that connection was we were able to have all of the hard conversations. Suddenly, everything was out on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a completely authentic moment. I'll never forget when I told her I had been having an affair, and then as the days stretched out, I told her that you know it wasn't just one it had been you know several and and then it wasn't just our relationship it had been every relationship before and mm. and, and suddenly it was all out there yeah and over the next several years we began to actually ask these larger questions like what if you weren't broken what if you weren't flawed? What if actually your way of being in the world was okay, but the containers that you were putting yourself in weren't sufficient or sustainable? Yeah. Right? yeah. What would it look like to create a container where you were actually okay? 
And I, I think that that really is one of the great questions we should ask ourselves, not just about this, but about any number of things that are we creating containers sufficient to hold the human experience? Yeah. Right. And I would say absolutely not or not. <laughs> no, not at relational levels, not at societal no. levels. You know, you talk about the capacity to love more than one person. I'm going to be honest. I've got four kids. It never once occurred to me that I couldn't love more than one person. Right. I say that all the time. I'm like, when was the last time you were shamed for wanting another child? Right. Never. People yeah. aren't shamed for wanting to have a, oh, but you're not going to possibly be able to love the first one as much as the second, you know, like it's going to take away some love from the first one. It's like, we don't say that. We don't think that because we haven't been trained to think that we've been programmed that there's something wrong with that. But when it comes to romantic love, no, you possibly, there's no possible way you could love more than one person without it hurting the other. Well, all the rules that we have been taught around relationships of ownership of, of that your partner should meet all your needs or that you're completed by your other half and all these things. Here we are. There's no framework for, oh, well, how does that work with more than one person? I only have two halves. So if one of those halves is filled by that, then there's no more room. What if we don't have halves? What if we just love ourselves wholly? You love yourself as a whole person. And we come together and share in our experience and, and vulnerability and intimacy and authenticity by being real and owning who we are. How beautiful yeah. does that become? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and again, not everyone chooses to have four kids. Some people choose to have one. Now, what I will say is that I think the human heart is capable of, of, infinite connections and love. Mm -hmm. I don't think time is. No. <laughs> I, I think our ability to invest in someone is actually pretty limited. And I think yeah. that one of the practical concerns about ethical non-monogamy usually has to do with your schedule, right? Yes. Am I able to sustain a, 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 an amount of relationships? Am I able to invest in others in ways? Yeah. I think to your point that you just said, and it's so good, is like everything culturally has programmed us not only what relationships look like but what love feels like yeah so that you know by the time i'm 12 or so i'm utterly convinced that love feels like an exclusive mm -hmm. connection where uh, you know i don't even see anyone else i'm blind you know to mm -hmm. anyone else yeah. in the world um I, I think Ray Charles saying, you know, when a man loves a woman, she can even do no wrong, right? right? We are programmed by every Beatles song, every jazz anthem, every every story that we hear. Yeah. Oh, my God. Everything is working not just to tell us what relationships are, but what love is. Yeah. And what and we so, ultimately need to feel happy. Right. And like what you if you if you stray from that, you think that you're doing something wrong. Right. If you don't fit into that narrative, you're like, well, what's wrong with me? Like what you said. I mean, I liked a different boy almost every day or every, every week, you know? And I just, I, I felt like I, there was something so wrong with me, but like what it is about me is that I deeply desire connection with people because I feel alive by that. Um, and even now, like your, your point to, we have a limited amount of time. I have the capacity to love many, many people unhierarchically, right? Mm, like if yeah. we talk about hierarchy, primary, secondary partners and things like mm. that. And for a long time, I was really um, 
Franklin Vaux's teaching was very mm-hmm. prominent and and really struck a chord for me. And I was like, oh no, I, I, I can't be polyamorous if I have a primary partner and if I am not willing to just love everybody equally and give everybody the same treatment. And I'm like, I, and I couldn't r- rationalize that in my brain. But then, you know, there, I listened to a podcast finally with all his like exes and they're on a mission to say, Hey, yeah. he right. is not being truthful. He can't manage that. He has never managed it well. In fact, he's acts more like a narcissist than anything. And, you know, I'll leave it at that, but, but it helped me to just be able to untangle that quote unquote right way to do poly is non-hierarchical. And I feel that's so sad because people on poly groups and chats and, and, um, uh, Facebook groups, I mean, they bash anyone. They they literally bash someone new or anyone that comes into the group that might have a hierarchical like, oh, you're being so selfish if you think that your husband da, 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 gets your prayer. And and here's what I took from that discussion with with Franklin Bowe's exes is this beautiful notion <laughs> that we just have to be honest. Yeah. And communicate what our availability mm. is. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can have my primary partner, which I do. He lives two hours away mm. and I love him to death. And I make him a priority because I literally have to drive two hours every other week. And that's when I get to see him. And for me to add more people to that, they have to understand mm. that he's my guy and he's going to be my priority for the time being and for what we have, we have such a connection and it's incredible. We have chosen that. I choose that. And it doesn't mean that my connections with other people are less. So for me, a good barometer, if I can't talk about Steve Mm. and, and feel comfortable doing that and you feel happy with the fact that he's in my life, then you can't be a part of my life because it's not going to work because you have to share me. Regardless, mm. I'm not going to be able to give you the equal amount of time. I just don't have it. I'm trying to, I'm an entrepreneur for goodness <sighs> sakes. Like, <laughs> you know, we barely have time to begin with. So I it just, that, that frame, that shift of framework was so helpful for me because I'm like, no, if I want a primary partner, I absolutely can, mm. but I get to be responsible for sharing my availability and asking consent to someone else, whether it be a unicorn or a bull or whatever you want to say. Oh, you can't go unicorn hunting. Well, yes, you can. If you are very clear on what you want and you tell them this is this is all that we can provide. Are you in or are you out? Don't give them the false hope that we're not hierarchical and everybody's equal. And then you can't live that out. Like that is, that's the worst problem. That's Mm. unethical to me, you know, not being honest that I'm, I am choosing to have some hierarchy because that is what works for me right now. And it can change at any time. I think that, that last phrase that you just said right there is so key to me. And, you know, I think, rather relentless disclosure continual disclosure is so important Mm -hmm. what works for me today isn't necessarily what worked for me yesterday Mm -hmm. and you know i think so much of life and certainly relationship is actually just negotiation yeah 
I, one of the things, you know, and I'm, I'm in the, the social media Instagram sphere quite a bit. And I, I see these posts, you know, no compromise, no regrets, you know, win everything, winner takes all mentality. And I think this is just so not relationship. Now, I don't love compromise. But what I will say is negotiation isn't the same as compromise. No. Negotiation is when you walk away with what you want, something you want, and I walk away with something I want. Yeah. Now, we don't get everything we want. Exactly. But that's but whole, life, right? But that's life. <laughs> oh, and, and I get so worried for the generation coming up because like, we're taught that we have to raise our kids to feel like they're in a fairy tale. as a ch The childhood is a fairy tale. And I'm like... You, but life is not a fairy tale and it's wonderful to get to enjoy all these things, but they're going to grow up thinking that everything is just supposed to be so wonderful. And it's like, what if we just normalize the concept that it's a good thing to fail? Yeah, right. You know, I just saw this great meme the other day and it was like, or the uh, video, probably like a reel or something. And, and the girl was like, in my family, our dad at the dinner table asked, Every day, what did you fail at today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what a beautiful reframing of that because then you're not afraid to try because if you fail, that's a positive thing. You failed forward and you moved mm -hmm. forward. So like, why can't we adopt that in life? Like we're, why is, why is a, a relationship? I say this too a lot. If you are in a marriage, like I was married for 23, 22 wow. years. 23 years. Um, I mean, it's been 25 now, but, but technically 23 years and then we separated and, um, you know, that's a failure. I had to get over that. That was, you know, I failed at marriage because that was the last thing I wanted. I wanted to have a success, successful marriage. Well, I did have a successful marriage. I, I learned so much about myself. I was able to reevaluate my faith. I, have three amazing kids. Two of them are adults and they're doing well and they live in an apartment on their own together mm -hmm. and they are happy and they enjoy each other. They're best friends. My son is doing well and he loves life and he's confident and he doesn't have to go with the flow and he doesn't have to agree and succumb to peer pressure. Mm -hmm. He might have ups and downs. He might have devastating moments, but he's still he knows that that's okay to have those devastating moments. It's okay to cry. It's okay to not follow what everybody wants from you. Um, mm. And where was I going with that? Oh, oh, so I did not fail at my marriage. I We had a successful marriage and we raised three amazing children that are independent and authentic, right? Mm. And we were not good for each other and we became very toxic to each other because we were trying to fit each other in a mold that we didn't fit anymore at all. Right. And it was hurting our mental health. It was hurting us. So it was brave and beautiful and a success to say our time is over now, you know, like it's time to plant a new garden, you know, <laughs> it's time to, to do something new and it's okay. And, we still live in the same house, but we aren't enemies, mm. right? And and to me, how is that a failure? You know, how is that a failure? And yet we celebrate people who've been married for 50 years and hate each other's guts. 
and they're miserable. And we celebrate that because they've done the right thing of just sticking through it. And I'm just like, we have to change that narrative because it's harmful and it's hurtful. And, you know, I'm not saying we don't work hard and I'm not saying like, you know, talk to the hand, like you said, there's such a, there's such a like cancel culture, you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, as a woman, I, I think that, well, I used to hate feminism. That was the worst thing, right? Because I was a submissive wife and I had to like accept all those and that was against everything. But I'm, I'm very feminist now and I agree, but I don't think we should swing to the complete opposite side where we're like, fuck men and fuck this. And they can't do, you know, like you have to respect me. I'm like, well, are you respecting them? Because it's an equal opportunity exchange here. You know, like men aren't shitheads. They've been programmed just like we all have, and they have to do some unraveling. And I just think that we we get to change our minds. We get to decide what we want. We get to honor our desires and not shame them. And when we let go of that shame and guilt, we can start living, really living. I, I think that's that's it. When I said earlier, when we can begin to live without excuses or escapes. Mm-hmm. You know, shame is such an interesting emotion. For one thing, I think Brene Brown has called so much attention to shame, mm. you know, since she spoke out so eloquently about it initially. And But I, I think we've lost something in the cultural lexicon about shame. I think we always think that shame is, is bad somehow. The reality is shame's an adaptive emotion, just like every other human emotion, like sadness and joy and happiness and jealousy. They're all, they're all emotions that we yeah. adapted for powerful reasons across our human history. You know, shame is one of those that is meant to tell us that we're outside of alignment with our chosen community. Mm-hmm. Now, what's so important about this in today's terms is we actually have options that our ancestors mm-hmm. didn't have 350,000 years ago. So if we feel shame, we, we do have some options. Option one is to change. Mm-hmm. I feel a sense of shame, you know, gosh, I, I'm sleeping with a number of people. I'm not telling my partner about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm out of consent in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then someone finds out. I, I feel a tremendous amount of shame. I remember this. And I remember feeling an immense weight of sorrow. Pablo Neruda's poem, you know, look at the, the garden that I have been entrusted. Have I not ruined it? You know, this feeling of like, God, I've really done something. Well, now you have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can come into alignment. You can say, okay, I, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. So that, that's one response to shame. Another response to shame is, is to hide even more, yep. Yep. right? And sometimes that's effective, right? Like if, if I commit a murder, <laughs> this is this is this is a hypothetical. We're not condoning here. this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if I commit a if I commit a murder and and you know I feel an immense amount of shame about it, I never want to commit murder again. Um, I, I I'm not necessarily going to go out and tell everyone that I did that. I might have to hide it for the rest of my life and live under the weight of shame. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just change my behavior. Um. <laughs> Okay, so hiding is an option, changing is an option, but today we actually live with a new option called I get to go and 
form communities around the behaviors that actually aren't hurting others. Mm -hmm. I get to go and find a new chosen community. The old one said no. The old one said that's bad, that's wrong. But, but when I look at it, it may not be bad or wrong. It may not actually be something that is, is against society's norms necessarily, or maybe it's just not immoral, and I want to continue doing it. Mm-hmm. I want to do so in a in an ethical way. And so mm-hmm. I go and I find new communities that support that. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways we get to push past through shame. And I think a number of people are choosing to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have family members who, who are very, very close to me who came out within the last 20 years as as uh, gay. And, and I remember at first it was such like a intense, deplorable moment for them where they felt the, the weight of all of society turned against them, you know, and it felt so awful and, oh my gosh, it was so heavy. And today when, uh, you know, a teenager might come out as gay, I, I remember hearing a mom say, oh my God, finally, mm-hmm. oh my God, I'm so happy. Society's responses are changing in such a short time to difference. Well, I I see that this is actually going to continue to happen on down the line with things like polyamory, things like Mm -hmm. open relationships, ethical Mm non-monogamy. I think that today there's a very heavy weight. People are like, ethical non-monogamy, what the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. polyamory are you are, are you are you talking about sister wives here right I, I know I, everybody says that. but but i think that you know in 20 years i think it's going to be pretty much as natural as now today people who come out as not without difficulty but far wider acceptance well even in 10 years it's changed a lot because when i first started hearing about it it was like, a, and I mean, I just did a lot of research for a long time, you know, and then realized that I think this is for me. This is, seems to fit like these are the kinds of people that I want to associate with people who are willing to be themselves and authentic and don't judge me. They don't have to do what I do. That's mm. the difference, too. Like, at church, that community, we all connected because we believed the same thing, exactly the same thing. And if you veered away from any of that and didn't agree with someone, then that was not no longer, it was no longer a good connection with that person. And you might be ostracized from that group. Well, I find that in my community. So for instance, I'm a swinger. I'm also polyamorous. Those are very different communities. Yeah. And the right. swingers often judge the polyamorous. How can you how can you have emotions for more than one person? Okay. And then the polyamorous, they're like, how can you just have sex for fun? Right? right. And it's like, no, no, guys, we're on the same team here. We're on the same team. We just love more of love or more sex. And we just want to be accepted to express ourselves the way that we choose to. So for me, mm. I get to be in the lifestyle and have that group of friends. And I find that my people now, like even in that circle, my people, they might not agree with polyamory, Mm. but they agree with me making the choice for myself and watching it work for me and not understanding it, but supporting my choice and supporting my desire for things and being willing to understand or to ask questions rather than judge me. 
And right. the polyamorous community, there's things that I don't agree with with that because I'm not a bl- I, I'm a black or white person, but I'm not like a oh like politically correct all the time and and stuff. And I find that there's like there's another you know where we can ostracize ourselves so much from society by being you know, people say a snowflake or whatever, but, you know, by being so worried about the terminology and this, and you can't say this and they call me the wrong pronoun. And I'm like, why don't we give people a break and just assume that people aren't trying to be shitheads and assume that some people just don't know, or some people are, and if they're showing you that they're shitheads over and over again, then they're not your people and don't just don't be with them, but don't sit and pile shame on top of them. Yeah. All the time, if they just say one thing wrong or whatever. Anyways, side point, obviously. But you know, we can we can be in multiple spheres. Like you know, my polyamorous life looks very different than my swinger life, and my swinger friends don't understand it. My polyamorous friends don't necessarily understand the swinging side of things, but it looks very different. And in the context. What I enjoy about those things does have a definite connect. Mm. And the things I enjoy about both of those worlds is the freedom and the connection that I make with people. And so my swinger friends have to be willing to connect on some kind of emotional level. I'm not going to go and have a private um, emotional relationship with them unless that's what they do. That mm. I'm not a threat to that. I'm not a threat to another couple. I love my couple and mm-hmm. I can come with my guy and I love interacting and being able to joke around sexually and just be a sexual goddess and dress sexy and just be in that vibe. Or I can go and be like very emotionally intimate with someone and cuddle with them and just be in that sort of loving, caring moment with someone. And as long as they're consenting to that and that's a part of their agreement, then it's awesome. And as long as they're respectful to my, you know, my world. And so we don't have to agree. Right. We can agree to disagree. And that's a beautiful statement. And my community is my magical world because it's a safe place for me to get to be me, even if others aren't just like me. Yeah. There's, it's an openness of understanding. I absolutely love that. I love that vision of, of again, we'll use a word that we used early on, authenticity. Mm-hmm. That's you actually just showing up authentically. This yeah. is me. And, and, you know, what's interesting is me changes over time. Yep. Right. I don't have to camp down on me. What I love about at least the promise of these kinds of relationships is that they're they're living in the authentic aftermath of love. You know, I, I think sometimes we get real ideological about things even when they don't work like, Oh my God, I am ethically non-monogamous, even though every relationship I've had an ethical non-monogamy hurts is painful is, is, you know, gruesome and just a dismembering of everything I adore, but damn it, I'm going to make it work because mm-hmm. it's the right thing. We can get real ideological about what we do in this world. Mm-hmm. But I think that the promise of these kinds of flexible, 
connections is that we build them around our authentic experience of ourself and others so that they can house us that i can say god i fell in love with you mm-hmm. and the relationship i'm in can contain that actually yeah. and i can show myself to you and you can show yourself to me and tomorrow that may change actually mm-hmm. not that we're going to be capricious or inconsistent yeah but rather my commitment is to be completely upfront with you about yeah. my experience day to day yeah yeah i love, I love that. that i love that yeah it, and and it allows for true humanness you know it allows for us to to not put ourselves in a box it's what i'm trying to get out of i don't want to put myself in another box you know like i stepped out of the box of of fundamentals evangelical christianity even though that was my world and i loved it and i understood it and my parents are still in that world mm. You know, like it's that it that's a huge thing right there. And they want to put me back in that box, but I can't. I can't go mm. back to that. I can't unsee what I've seen, you know. I can't ununderstand things. And um, and then you know, people want to put it, oh, you know, you're in the lifestyle box or you're in the polyamorous box. And it's like, no, I'm not. You know, like, why are we, why are we getting so specific on our labels about everything? And I understand it. So people feel like they fit in, but what if we fit in on just being genuine, you know, whatever that looks like. Right. That relentless commitment to be ourselves as we are in this moment and to accept to whatever degree we can someone else engaged in that same practice that's the the spiritual path of relating you know one of the things i think you just said kind of caught my attention as far as parents wanting to put you back in a box and boy isn't that just the truth i mean Mm -hmm. i I was even thinking recently about how you know uh, i got a phone call from from one of my parents and uh and you know i i don't I am I am not uh, someone who feels the great need to tell my parents my movements in life or yeah. the places where I am. But my God, if, if this particular phone call wasn't, you know, what are you doing with your life? What is happening right now? You know, it's like, are you getting a divorce? Is this, you know, I mean, it was like trying to put everything into the categories that she understood. Right, right. Right. And of course not. Of course not, mom. I think that we have to develop also compassionate language to people who don't yes. understand and won't understand. And not right? just be angry and treat them like they're um, like they're idiots or that they're, it's like they have been programmed. I would not have questioned. I that That was so strongly ingrained in me from the day I was born. So unless I would have had, unless I had this huge moment where this very important person to me Mm. had this huge shift and I respected them so much that I had to look into it because I couldn't make sense of it. And I trusted them and they're not someone to just change their minds just because. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, they're not just doing this for their own sake. Like there's a reason. And what do, what am I wanting to bury my hand head in the sand from, you know, like what do I not want to see just to keep my world safe Well, I was willing to look out and I was willing to trust that if God is the God of the universe, that he's going to show me the truth. Like Mm -hmm. if I 
if he's that powerful, then what do I have to fear? Nothing. He should be able to to hold up to scrutiny. He's God. Right? Yeah. I love that. I mean, you know, what you're describing is such a generous view of life. It's allowing yourself to have whatever experience you're having in this moment, knowing that it might change, knowing that it might shift, knowing that that one way or the other, you're going to move through passages of life. And I, I could wish that everyone began to adopt that that same generosity. And, and hopefully, as cracks in the ice of identity began to form, you know, when when suffering happens or sadness mm-hmm. or tragedy, we allow those cracks in the ice of identity to form. We go, okay, there's more going on than meets the eye. Yeah, yeah. How can I respond to the great plurality, the infinite mm-hmm. options of being alive in a way that is not dogmatic, that is not rigid, that is not mm-hmm. somehow a, a fundamentalist, yeah. right? Black and white, but rather takes it on in the beautiful technicolor vision that mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a great. Great place to end. Great place oh, to end. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, I love these kinds of conversations. To me, they're magical. To me, this is why I love the life that I have is that mm. no one's upset with me for having these kinds of conversations with people and and to have like true intimacy with people. And sometimes that means feelings develop and mm. there's nothing wrong with that. That's just like being true. Because why shouldn't we have feelings for people that we care about? We can choose to do whatever we want with those feelings. But I think we've been taught that if we have feelings, we have to make it into something. It has to fit this or this. Otherwise, it can't exist. And it's like, why can't it be? And, Mm. you know, why can't I have feelings and be a friend? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, what's wrong with that? And you know, why, why is a friend with benefits a a negative thing when, when I can have such an intelligent, emotional, physical connection with that person, but I don't have to entangle or enmesh my life with them. Like, why can't that be enough? And why can't that have its own value? Mm, Right. It's just so, and, and people are missing out on those possibilities by putting themselves in a box. And that's what I want people to know is that you get to design your life however you want it to be, as long as you're being ethical, not hurting other people. And as long as you're willing to change your mind and be honest about that, like, why not go and and be willing to fail every once in a while? But that's harder said than done. Yeah, so. What I would say also, one one thought here about, I think. I think that concept of not hurting other people, which I actually said during this podcast, and I thought to myself, I think I need to bring this back up. You know, I think we've got to get over that idea. I like that you're coming back to this. Yes. Because the reality is that um, hurt happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I could strive to be the perfect parent. And there are moments when I will say no to my children that Mm -hmm. they will have hurt feelings. Mm Mm-hmm. Whenever I draw a boundary, someone, in fact, may take offense. Whenever I choose to go my own way, Mm -hmm. someone might not share that opinion and be tremendously heartbroken. That I think we have to get over this idea of we're not going to hurt people. Now, we don't have to do it in hurtful ways. Well, there you go. Like, what if the difference is maliciously... That's right. Hurting someone like on purpose, purposefully malicious, you know, like that's totally different and that's being an ass, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's a dick move. Yeah. So (laughs) 
but yeah, you're not. And, and that whole, like, I'm not responsible for your feelings. That's so like yeah. such an easy way to be an ass that way. Totally. I'm responsible for my feelings. Yes. And if you, if what you do when you're being true and honest and ethical and kind, mm-hmm. how about we add kind, yeah. right? If you're doing that. things in kindness and someone else is hurt, well, that might be their own trigger, their own trauma that they have to heal from. And that might've hit them the wrong way, but you didn't do that to hurt them. And you right. can't live your life to please everyone and to keep everyone from feeling any hurt because that's just going to be impossible. My parents are still hurt, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And they know I love them, but my decisions, I'm not going to make my decisions to prevent them from being hurt. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I do. And risking that they might find out right there's this beautiful concept uh on on uh, that i first learned about through the the buddhist community called the moral remainder and i I think the the moral remainder is this this idea that actually pain happens hurt happens no matter how much i try to minimize it yeah and and in fact we do try to eliminate unnecessary suffering but right, think about it. I might choose to be vegan as a way of reducing the the suffering of what I might consider sentient beings. Mm-hmm. But then I become dependent, perhaps, on plants and and you know vegetables and and in fact they will now suffer. That mm-hmm. the actually far enough down the line, something is now. I might reduce it, and in fact, I might even limit the scope of my calories because, gosh, I just can't imagine even hurting the the, the fungi that that I. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and yet still there is a moral remainder and I have to learn to live with the impact of my decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really think that so much of this is learning how to stand on your own two feet yeah, and begin to say, I make decisions, they have consequences and I choose them. Yeah. And owning them, right? Like right. I always say, own your shit, own your shit and, and live the rest, you know, like live your life authentically and beautifully and learn to love yourself and be okay with your own decisions Mm. and be kind to yourself. Like if trying to hurt someone else means that you're making the choice that's going to hurt you, that's not the right decision, you know? Mm. And we have to find balance in life. Everything's a give and take. And there's this kind of beautiful middle sometimes that, we don't like to be in because we're we're taught that it's we're left or right, you know, black or white. It's we're taught these extremes. You either fall in this camp or this camp, and this in between is like no man's land, right? Nobody can That's be right. there. So, well, thank you for having me on today. Oh, thank you I for just appreciated it. <laughs> this was fun. Well, I don't know if you ever have um, guests on your podcast, but I listened to a couple episodes and I loved it. So if I, if you ever need a guest, I would love to Absolutely. to have a chat there with you. So that'd be so great. We haven't actually had guests yet, but I'm going to keep it in the wait list for you. There for you sure. go. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you, Rainier. Is there anything, um, if there is any links or if people want to reach out to you, do you want to right. leave anything? I can put them in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> Go over to my Instagram, Rainier Wild, uh, and you'll find daily writings there and access and they're great. And opportunity. Oh, they're so, so good. Much. I've I've used them in my stories a lot lately. I just think they're fabulous. So oh, I appreciate that. And and actually, you know, I'm uh 
in January launching an amazing um, group mastermind container called uh, Wisdom Camp. And it's all mm. about discovering who you are, what you're about, and what the next steps are uh, to take in life. And it is a really exciting and dynamic time. I can't wait for for Wisdom Campers. And it's going to be an oh, eight-week awesome. program. Super cool. And then um, otherwise, uh, listen to our podcast, Love Like Hell. Uh, and you can find my book on Amazon.com, As You Are, which is all about living the authentic life in relationship to others. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, so, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much, Rainier Wild, for coming to speak to us again. I really enjoyed this conversation so much. I just found it so valuable, and I hope that everyone else gets a lot of value out of it. I hope you guys just found some great nuggets in there. I wrote a few down because I just thought they were just so good. You know how Rainier talks about living living the wild and precious life. That's really what we're here to do. And I, I love that because it's so true. We have to shed our dependency on rightness. Wow. Yes, we are so often dependent on being right in order to feel worthy. And that's just not necessary. And um, I love how he said that miserable people make the rules for others. <laughs> that's so true too. Yet we think that that's what we need to follow because, you know, these are the rules that have been set for us in society. And um, then just about ethical non-monogamy or just ethic ethics in general, um, he just talked and reiterated the idea of relentless disclosure. So a continual disclosure the idea that what worked for me yesterday might not work tomorrow and that we can renegotiate things and come to conclusions that work for everyone's best interest. So just some little nuggets that I grabbed that I wrote down and wanted to share with you and leave you with. So thank you for listening. Remember, as I always say, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. We'll see you next week. Love you. Mwah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Corrine Bedard Coaching, and you can visit my website at CorrineBedard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give it a like and share it with your friends. I'd be so grateful if you could help by giving us a five-star review on Podchaser or iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list to be kept up to date about upcoming episodes and exciting news. Just visit our website at breakingfreeauthentically.com and scroll down to subscribe. You can also email me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Send your messages and questions to kareen at kareenbedard.com. Are you a part of my Facebook community yet? Join us in Breaking Free Authentically. It's where you will find this sex-positive relationship community. I'd be thrilled to have you be a part of this community with me. All the links will be in the show notes, so don't forget to check it out. Remember, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. Have a great week.